Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and the generous gifts of our listeners to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you and to the world. If you don't already partner with Fighting for the Faith, visit our website at fightingforthefaith.com and click on one of our friendly yellow buttons. One says join our crew, the other says donate. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $8.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. If you want to specify the amount, you click on the donate button or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. And let me thank you for your support. We cannot do what we are doing here without it. And now, on to the program. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Monday, March 10th, 2014. Yeah, I gotta tell you, this uh, Driscoll New York Times scandal is um, getting weird. And it's like creepy in the weird department. In fact, there's a good chance that um, tomorrow I might have Janet Mefford on my program, working out the details. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. Sadly, there is no shortage of crazy things being said out there. We take the time to slow down and open up our Bibles and compare what God's Word says to what's being said and oftentimes what's being done in the name of God out there. Now, as I told you at the opening of the program, the uh, the Driscoll scandal has uh, taken a, a bizarre turn. And uh, and what I mean by that is, is apparently, you know, he's, he's um, kind of sort of, well, no, he hasn't really apologized. That's the thing. Is that um, the um, let, let's just say that it's now come to light that the former uh, um, Mars Hill staff members they can't speak out because they're afraid because they've they've been forced to sign non disclosure agreements um, gag orders if you would um, that would cause them to lose their insurance or severance pay if they said uh, nary a word against uh, <laughs> against. Mark Driscoll and uh, things like that, and of course, you know, over the weekend, late, they uh, they issued a kind of sort of explanation ish kind of thing, and uh, and then of course the uh, the Christian Post, the way they're covering the story now is uh, that uh, apparently, you know, Mark Driscoll has taken an apologetic tone. Yeah, he, he, during his last sermon, and they've linked to a video. So we'll, we'll cover that. Um, and just just going to ask the question right up front. <laughs> well, we're, we'll get to it the second half of the hour. Uh, but let me ask the question. I mean, is it enough that Mark Driscoll has taken an apologetic tone? Yeah, I mean, it sounds apologish-ish. Um, but, um, you know, I mean, seriously, okay. Those of you married guys out there, um, you, you know what I'm talking about when I say that, especially early on in the marriage, um, the majority of the faults in the marriage actually fall on us. Um, at least it's been my 
uh, <clears throat> that's been my experience. And so, you know, the way I was as a young married guy is a, is a lot different now that, you know, I'm, you know, been married for 25 years. And I think back to, you know, the foolish, dumb things that I did uh, when I first got married. And, you know, of course, the majority of the problems squarely rested on my shoulders. That's just the way I see it. So, um, you know, thinking back to how I was back then, I don't think it would have would have flown at all with my wife if I had said something to the effect of, you know, listen, you know, I'm taking an apologetic tone with you. Uh-huh. I mean, I don't, it, it, why isn't that enough? You know, I... You, you're sitting there telling me I screwed up. You're telling me that, you know, I shouldn't have done that or shouldn't have said that. And, you know, listen, it should be enough for you that I'm taking an apologetic tone. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm taking uh, – in fact, listen, listen, listen. Um, <clears throat> here it is. Yeah, see, I have an apologetic tone. I mean that should be enough, right? <laughs> I mean if I had tried that with my wife, she would have taken my head and smashed it through a wall and I would have deserved it. Uh, yeah, no, it doesn't work that way. Yet when you do something wrong, here, here's the idea. You confess what you've done wrong. You openly apologize for what you did wrong. And, uh, yeah, that's the idea. You know, you actually have to, you know, and it might require you to actually state what you've done wrong. And then you will, you know, you apologize for it. And then you're forgiven. It's, it, it, this is how this works. Repentance and forgiveness of sins actually kind of sort of works off of the idea that you confess what you've done wrong. So, I mean, you know, things are brewing regarding the New York Times scandal with uh, Mark Driscoll. And this this past Sunday, he's taken an apologetic tone. Oh, wow. I mean, what a big guy he is. So, it's like... So we're going to cover that. In fact, let's talk about what we're going to do on today's episode of Fighting for the Faith. We're going to start with – we're not going to start with Mark Driscoll, although I've kind of you know tipped my hand as to where we're going to go with this. I mean it's absolutely very discouraging, and I would recommend prayers uh, for Mark Driscoll. I mean the man is not confessing his sin. He's not actually repenting. We're not seeing actual true repentance from Mark Driscoll at all. And uh, and what has happened demonstrates that he does not meet the biblical qualifications to be a pastor. And, uh, you know, but of course, his board of, you know, of accountability advisors are treating him like, oh, he's too big to be allowed to fail. Makes me wonder, I mean, with the plagiarism scandal that hit last year, with the fact that he was the one riding the getaway car to smuggle um, – T.D. Jakes, a modalist, into the mainstream of Christianity. And, of course, T.D. Jakes at Elephant Room 2 confessed to being a uh, – he believes in God in three persons if by persons you mean manifestations, which means he's still a modalist. Or you can say, sure, he's a Trinitarian as long as by Trinitarian what you mean is that he's a modalist. You know, I mean, so he was the one driving the getaway car for that debacle. I mean, then we've got the uh, – the, the, you know, there's a pile of dead bodies behind the Mars Hill bus – um, debacle that he's never repented of. I mean, in the in the store, in the and it just goes on and on to him, you know, not speaking the truth about having his books confiscated at strange fires, uh, the strange fire conference, to him receiving pornographic visions, and now we're finding out that there is a huge turnover among the leadership staff at Mars Hill. And the folks there are absolutely terrified to speak out because they've been forced to sign a non-disclosure agreement, which makes you ask the question, what is this man hiding? 
And uh, and will we be actually hearing from uh, former staff members regarding the details of what is going on over there at Mars Hill? I mean, listen, where there's smoke, there's fire. But in this particular case, it's not that we're just seeing smoke. We're actually seeing flames. We have been for a while. And it's and the folks over at Mars said, oh, just ignore the flames. Yeah, it's not what you think. Yeah, this is crazy. Anyway, so what we're going to do is we're going to start off today with a, um, a if, of all things, a purpose-driven update, a Rick Warren update. Yeah, Rick Warren, um, he's uh, jumped on the uh, <clears throat> the narcissistic eisegesis bandwagon this past Sunday, preached a sermon entitled Facing Giants in Life and Work. Yeah, Facing Giants. And I'm not going to actually play for you the whole thing. You know, we're not going to review the whole sermon, but I'm going to actually play for you the opening to uh, the sermon on Facing Giants. And let you hear it from Rick Warren's mouth, what he's been so busy doing for the past few decades. What really, I mean, what he's really been up to. Because, you know, he tells you what he's been really trying to do. And we'll do a little biblical counterpoint to see if uh, if what he's been focusing on is what he as a pastor should be focusing on. Um, then we got an Andy Stanley uh, vision casting update. That's right. Yeah, we'll be playing our vision casting update music for Andy Stanley. And apparently on his latest leadership podcast, Andy Stanley has made the claim that vision casting is a team sport. Yeah. Now, last week on uh, the Friday episode of Fighting for the Faith, we played um, Perry Noble giving us the source of the visions that, you know, in his own words, this, this, this is prophetic visions from God that individual unique pastors are supposed to be receiving and casting uh, to the people in their congregation. So, um, and of course, now that, you know, you've received this direct vision from God, uh, Andy Stanley has come in and, and it's given us more information that apparently uh, vision casting is a team sport. We'll take a break. After the break, we'll do our extended Mark Driscoll update. And then in hour number two, we are heading to Bozeman, Montana, Bozeman, Montana, and um, listening to a uh, uh, from uh, to a sermon from Bozeman Christian Center um, uh, that's based upon uh, Andy Groeschel's book Chazon uh, and uh, not Calzone but Chazon um, yeah, yeah the Hebrew word apparently for vision and uh, we'll be de- so today's uh, to- total episode of Fighting for the Faith in one way or another touches on or focuses on. Everything to do with the purpose-driven, seeker-driven movement. So um, I recommend that you make yourself comfortable. We've got, I mean, literally tons of ground to cover on today's episode of Fighting for the Faith. And since we're starting with a, a Rick Warren update, well, that requires us to do this. I don't know how I know. But I'm gonna find my purpose I don't know where I'm gonna look But I'm gonna find my purpose Gotta find out, don't wanna wait Got to make sure that my life will be great Gotta find my purpose Before it's too late That's right, (laughs) that's... Find your purpose before it's too late. Got to find it quick. Okay, so what we're going to be listening to right now is the opening portion of this past Sunday's sermon preached by Rick Warren over there at Saddleback Church. And the name of it is Facing Giants in Life and Work. Facing Giants in Life and Work. And what I find, well, fascinating about this particular sermon is that Rick Warren tells us what it is that he's been up to these past few years, decades, things like that. And, um, well, let's hear it from himself and we'll uh, chime in accordingly. Here's Rick Warren on Facing Your Giants. Narcissistic, I said Jesus, by the way. Here we go. 
Your ability to dream is one of the greatest gifts that God has ever given you. When he gave you your mind and your ability to imagine, to imagine the future, to visualize in your mind what your future might be like, that is an enormous gift of God. It's what makes you different from animals. They don't have the ability to foresee the future, to imagine, to think, to create, to dream like human beings do. Hmm. He's starting to sound a lot like the um, <clears throat> Word of Faith guys who uh, have that constant emphasis on dreaming bigger dreams and stuff like that. This is kind of a fascinating way to start a sermon, especially from America's pastor, Rick Warren. We continue. Most like your creator when you're creative. When you're creative. Every great achievement in life began as a dream. Nothing happens until someone starts dreaming. You've got to have a dream for your life. You've got to have a dream for your life. If you don't have a dream, you're just drifting. You're not really living. You're you're just existing. You're not having a life. You're letting life happen to you. And you're just drifting. What does this have to do with sound doctrine and, and Christ and him crucified for our sins? Where are you getting this from? Napoleon once said, imagination rules the world. Napoleon said that. I didn't think Napoleon was in the Bible. Albert Einstein said, imagination is more important than knowledge. I, yeah, that's great, but Einstein's not in the Bible. I agree with him. Because everything starts with a dream. And everybody needs a dream for their life. Now, I've invested most of my life helping people figure out God's dream for their lives and then go after it. Yeah, did you catch that little quote? He's invested the large portion of his adult life helping people find their dreams and go after it that's a that's way different than what christ has actually called the church to do and what he's called pastors to do christ has called the church to go and proclaim repentance and the forgiveness of sins in jesus name to make disciples of all nations baptizing teaching them all that christ has commanded this is what christ has said and the job of pastors to preach the word not to help people find and discover their dreams and then make them happen this is a fascinating beginning to a Christian sermon. And, and yet I've discovered that for every one person who figures out what they want to do with their life, what they think God wants them to do with their life, has that dream and goes after it. For every one of those persons, there are nine people who never get started. They, they, they get stuck. And they get stuck because of problems that seem to be in the pathway of their dream. And those problems often seem so big, they feel as if they're giants. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so they get stuck on their way to living their dream, and those obstacles seem like giants. So now we're turning the story of David and Goliath into a purpose-driven, live-your-dreams metaphor. Some giant standing in the pathway saying, you will not go beyond this mark. Now, it may be a financial problem that seems like a giant problem. It may be a relational issue that seems like a giant problem. It may be a physical or emotional or spiritual 
problem that you think, this is just a giant standing in my pathway, blocking my dream. What do you do when that happens? That's what I want us to look at this weekend. What do you do when there are giants in your life? Giant problems that keep you from dreaming and fulfilling the dream that God has for your life. Fortunately, we've got a... Yeah, my dream is to uh, actually make it so the purpose-driven Bible twisters like you go out of business. I mean, and you seem like the big giant that's standing in the way of my dream. Wonderful story in the Bible that explains how to deal with the giants, the giant problems of life. It's in the book of 1 Samuel chapter 17. It's the story of David and Goliath. Now, a good friend of mine, right? Really, really, that's what the story of David and Goliath is about, is about learning how to apply techniques to overcome the giants in your life that are standing in the way of you and your dreams. Really. Malcolm Gladwell has written a new book called David and Goliath. And it is a story of underdogs, misfits, and the art of battling giants. And so I've asked Malcolm to come and share and help teach uh, this weekend with me. So I'm doing this introduction. Uh, then Malcolm is going to teach. And then I'm going to come back at the end. So we're going to put Malcolm in the middle. Mm-hmm. Uh, Malcolm Gladwell. Where did he go to seminary? Is he a pastor? Um, yeah, um, boy. <clears throat> anyway, you kind of get the idea of what's going on here. This is the nonsense. What? This is an epidemic. And by the way, ground zero for much of the nonsense that's happening in the church, it's Rick Warren's saddleback. So many of the vision-casting leaders that we're having problems with, Stephen Furtick, Andy Stanley, Perry Noble, Mark Driscoll, they're all disciples of Rick Warren. They all learn these bizarre, you know, ecclesiastical methods from Rick Warren. Many of them learn their Bible twisting techniques from Rick Warren. And that, you know, just that that first opening segment to this past Sunday sermon at Saddleback Church kind of gives you an idea that um, if you're going to Saddleback Church and you actually want to be taught sound doctrine and what God's words really is about, that's not part of the agenda over there at Saddleback. They've got other things they're doing. Um, but preaching Christ and him crucified for our sins and proclaiming repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name, making disciples and having people actually understand the full counsel of the word of God and what it actually means. Yeah, by the way, the story of David and Goliath is not about finding techniques so that you can slay the di- giants in your life that are standing in the way of you and your dreams. Um, yeah, um, see, the, if you actually want to understand scripture, you know, you know that's not what Saddleback is really about. You get what I'm saying. All right, moving along. Time for an Andy Stanley update. Trust in 
That's right, Los Lobos Ministry Records and their rendition of Casting Vision. <laughs> That's Who knew that we were so relevant here at Fighting for the Faith? All right, so what we're going to be listening to now is uh, from the Andy Stanley Podcast. This is Andy Stanley and his team there at the Andy Stanley Leadership Podcast talking about vision casting. And uh, did you know that it was a team sport? I didn't know it was a team sport. You know, because you know, I asked the question because, of course, the obvious thing comes to my mind is, where in the Bible does it say again that pastors are to receive a specific, unique vision from God and then cast it and then make sure it's a, a team sport? Yeah, here's uh, Andy Stanley and his uh, leadership team of catalytic church, uh, uh, well, mentors and church growth gurus to discuss how vision is a team sport. Here we go. As I mentioned in the opening today, the, the challenge that we're going to talk about is one that all leaders face, but too many of them face it alone. So, Andy, why don't you just set up the topic for us? Well, we're going to talk about vision casting, and we've talked about that before, and there's not a leader out there who doesn't understand the importance of vision. Um, it, it leaks. Um, it wanes. It gets lost in the complexity of organizational life. And uh, all every leader thinks, hey, I've already talked about that. I've already cast a vision. January's over. Let's get back to business. And we never cast the vision enough we did you catch that january's over we already cast the vision <laughs> yeah one of the things i've pointed out here at fighting for the faith and thank you andy stanley for point uh, for actually confirming this january is always vision casting sermon month yeah in the uh, seeker driven liturgical calendar 
we, again, we make so many assumptions as it relates to what we think people heard and what we think people are doing. So, again, at our drive conference a few years ago, um, Jeff talked about an aspect of vision casting that I thought was so unique and it was so helpful that I thought we would come back to a topic we've talked about before but look at it through just a little bit different filter. Jeff, the title of your talk was Vision. It's a team sport. What does that mean? Well, it's a sport, sports analogy, and uh, I think sometimes in the organizational world we can look. Could you guys give me a biblical analogy here? You know, actually show me the biblical texts that say that pastors are supposed to cast vision and that uh, they're supposed to constantly continue to cast vision and that it's a team sport um, and that people need to understand what the vision is and that their job at church is actually get behind the pastor's vision and unite around it. Can you show me those passages in the Bible, please? look at vision casting as an individual sport like golf. So uh, there's one person knocking the ball down the course, and uh, he or she's doing that, and so the rest of us are just kind of following along. <laughs> and so what happens is is that the vision is relegated to one person, the vision mm. casting, carrying the vision, and there's only so much one person can do in terms of moving the vision forward. So the challenge is is to think of vision as a team sport like football. There's certainly a point leader. There's a quarterback calling right. the plays and saying, Here, here's where we're going. But we're all on the field together, and we're carrying the vision together versus being on the sidelines together. And the reason that's important is in an organization, um, you need people to carry the vision. Mm. But what you need to allow people to understand is as they carry the vision, they're actually casting the vision as well. Because when it comes to vision casting, I think we can think of vision casters as the person that stands up on the stage with a microphone and they're giving an inspiring speech, which is a portion of vision. But there are those that have to move and carry the vision forward. I gave an example in the talk of Joanne Burns, our receptionist at Buckhead Church, and I yep. told Joanne, you're one of the best vision casters we have. Mm-hmm. And her response to me is, I never want to get on stage and talk to anybody. <laughs> yeah, but she was on the phone every Absolutely. day representing the organization. Absolutely. And so uh, it's easy for me on a Sunday to go, this is the kind of church we want to be or the kind of organization we want to be. But then they call Joanne on Monday to see if that's really yeah. what's happening. So as Joanne carries the vision – answering the phone, dealing with guests. She's actually casting the vision. So uh, oh, so the job of casting vision is not just with the visionary leader. See, because after it's been cast, the people are supposed to catch it, and then they got to recast it. Ah, the, wow, the, who knew? Be, yeah, because you won't find any of this in the Bible anywhere. Staff or volunteers or groups understand oh, I'm a vision caster because I'm carrying the vision, it allows people to understand they have a role in this. Yeah, Jeff, I remember you saying that there are four words that limit the vision of an organization. <laughs> right. Those are, it's not my job. Right. You know, when it comes to vision casting, it's not my job to do that. That's the, that's the role of, uh, of the point person. So the question I think every organization needs to ask is whose job is it to cast vision for the organization? Hmm. The answer is... Yes. It's it's everyone in every role. It's your responsibility to move this forward. A receptionist, as you mentioned, doesn't think of him herself or herself as a vision caster or a vision carrier. And yet it's true that every single person and every single. Yeah. So have you been test? Have you tested positive for carrying a vision? (laughs) It's probably like the Ebola virus. Again, this the fascinating thing for me in all of this is that the seeker-driven guys have got this very well-developed concept of receiving, casting vision, and all this kind of stuff, and they're constantly reinforcing this idea. And it's nowhere, nowhere taught in Scripture. This is a completely brand-new innovation that 15 years ago, you talk like this in a church, people would have looked at you like you have an arm sticking out of your ear. 
And uh, and yet these guys just talk, you know, so, oh, it's so nonchalant. And, the, and they're developing, further developing the finer points of this theology and this ecclesiology and all of it is completely man-made. None of it's found in Scripture. This, folks, is a, a, literally a heretical ecclesiology. Is it possible to have an a, 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 a ecclesiastical heresy? Well, if we, um, <laughs> if there ever was such a thing, I think we're looking at it right now with the whole seeker-driven, purpose-driven movement. All right, we're up on our uh, first break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Pirate Christian. Follow me on Twitter. My name there, at Pirate Christian. Quick break. When we come back, we've got a kind of a little extended Mark Driscoll update. There's been... Some responses to um, the New York Times bestselling scandal. Stay tuned. Don't want to miss it. We'll be right back. Unless your righteousness surpasses that of Rick Warren, you cannot be saved. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> Max Holiday's Birdcage Theater presents Church Day Select. summoned here to answer for your crimes against the church. Hold on. What crimes? All I know is that an hour ago I was sound asleep in my own bed, minding my own business, and then you people broke into my house, threw a black bag over my head, and then forcibly dragged me to this horrible place. And you, oh <laughs> you, you have the audacity to tell me that I've committed a crime. Silence! We will not tolerate insolence from the mouth of the guilty. Let the trial begin. Oh, pyrotechnics. <laughs> nice touch. Sitting in James McDonald's place today as High Chancellor Mark Driscoll. Thank you, Bailiff. Please read the charges. Henry Wigan, you have been charged with high treason against Harvest Bible Chapel for having an unauthorized opinion. You've got to be kidding me. Is it true that on your blog that you accused James McDonald of being financially irresponsible? Of course. Plunging the church into $65 million of debt Silence! Is- 
We have already heard your opinion it is for this slanderous accusation that you have been brought here before us. It's not an opinion, it's a fact! Oh, is it? We shall now vote on the validity of your so-called opinion. All of those in favor of Mr. Wiggins' opinion being null and void, say aye. Well, there you have it. Your opinion is not valid. That's absurd! You can't simply vote away facts because you disagree with them. In the church, it is the elder board that has the ultimate authority to decide what is truth and what is not. When we add consensus, we speak for God. It is for precisely this heretical worldview held by the elder board that I created my blog in the first place. Church matters are not to be tried in the court of public opinion. Publicizing viewpoints rejected by the elder majority for any reason is satanic to the core and must be dealt with very directly, which is why you are here. <laughs> Hold on, let me get this straight. So what you're saying is if the elder board were to vote on what color the sky is, then whatever the majority agrees on, be it purple, pink, or brown, would be reality, regardless of the fact that the sky is clearly blue. Yes! Were you dropped on your head as a child? That's beside the point. What you fail to realize is that the cult of the individual is coming to an end. We are the collective, you see. We must eradicate the poisonous ideology of individualism from the conscious minds of our church community if we are to fulfill the vision of our leader. <laughs> you know, that sounds an awful lot like fascism, if you ask me. Or anybody else for that matter. If that's what it takes... Then so be it. Don't pay more for travel than you need to. Hi, Chris Rosebro here to tell you about Pirate Christian Radio's featured advertiser, Cheapo Air. Cheapo Air is a leading provider of airline tickets, hotel rooms, and rental cars. Cheapo Air has extensive partnerships with the top travel brands in the world. Now, whether you need to travel for business or for pleasure, Cheapo Air can help you save money. And if you visit our website, piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, we have a promo code that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. So visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, then click on the banner and book your low-cost travel today. And remember, a portion of your purchase at Cheapo Air goes to support Pirate Christian Radio. Warning, anybody who's telling you that as a pastor they've received a direct vision from God and you need to get busy getting behind that vision, <laughs> yeah, you better run 
you are about to be put in major bondage. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you into the world. And you can partner with us by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see our friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $8.95. That's it. Every month, the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. It is a great way to support us. And of course, if you'd like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you could do so by clicking on the donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith, and then send it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Let me thank you for your support. We cannot do what we are doing here without it. All right, time for a little bit of an extended Mark Driscoll update. Here we go. street don't hear god's word no more the pastor says we don't feed no sheep so get busy and amuse those goats don't be lazy you're here to satisfy the leader's god-given vision supreme if you dare to question him well there'd certainly be a scene look out another one's off the bus another one's off the bus and another one's off and another one's off another one's off the bus hey He's gonna get you too. Another one's off the bus. One by one, people disappeared, never to be seen again. I thought this whole darn thing was a joke, but I changed my mind when I saw the pastor jump on the bus, tear out screeching down the street. People were getting squashed like bugs and piled up like dead meat. Look out! Another one's off the bus. Another one's off the bus. And another one's off. And another one's off. Another one's off the bus. Hey, they don't care about you. Another one's off the bus. I am all about blessed subtraction. There, there is a pile of dead bodies behind the Mars Hill bus. <laughs> and by God's grace, it'll be a mountain by the time we're done. Um, you either get on the bus or you get run over by the bus. Those are the options. But the bus ain't going to stop. There's a few kind of people. There's people who get in the way of the bus. They got to get run over. There are people who want to take turns driving the bus. They got to get thrown off because <laughs> they want to go somewhere else. There, there is a pile of dead bodies behind the Mars Hill bus. <laughs> and by God's grace, it'll be a mountain by the time we're done. Um, you either get on the bus or you get run over by the bus. Those are the options. But the bus ain't going to stop. The pile behind Mark Driscoll's church grew higher by the day. Some truly tried to follow his plan and they were thrown under anyway. Well, his vision was not complete. He was enraged by all of us. I told Mark to stop playing God and now I'm under the bus. Another one's off the bus. Another one's off the bus. And another one's off. And another one's off. Another one's off the bus. Hey, he's gonna throw you too. Another one's off the bus. That's right, another one's off the bus. 
And the reason why we keep using that for our Mark Driscoll update music is because he's never repented for this. Although, um, you're going to hear some apologetic-sounding-ish words from Driscoll here in today's update. So uh, when we last left off with the uh, Driscoll debacle on Friday, um, they hadn't quite released their uh, <clears throat> their statement. But yeah, as it turns out, you know, the, the way to bury a story, at least that's the way traditionally it's been done, but social media has kind of changed that, is you release a statement late on Friday night because, you know, people are going home for the weekend. They got They got baseball practice. They got... You know, things they're going to want to do, go to the mall and, you know, social activities over the weekend. And so you release the story and, and it's supposed to go away when you release it late on a Friday. So late on Friday, they released uh, the, the board of, a, of accountability advisors for Mars Hill Church. They um, <clears throat> released a statement regarding uh, the uh, New York Times bestselling debacle thing and how, you know, Mars Hill spent over $200,000 um, you know, purchasing their way onto the <clears throat> New York Times bestseller list for Mark Driscoll. And the statement that they put out, here's what, this is one of the brief statements from it. It says this, in 2011, outside counsel, mm-hmm. see, note here, this is kind of interesting here. It was somebody else's idea. They, it's, they're not responsible. Outside counsel advised our marketing team to use results source to market the real marriage book and attain placement on the New York Times bestseller list. See, see, yeah, see, some, listen, we were completely innocent. We were just minding our own business. And our outside counsel said, hey, you know, you need to market real marriage by using result source. And so, while not uncommon or illegal, this unwise strategy is not one that we had used before or since, and not one we will use again. The true cost of this endeavor, well, was much less than what has been reported, and it's clear that all the books purchased through this campaign have been given away or sold through normal channels. All monies from the sale of Pastor Mark's books at Mars Hill Bookstore have always gone to the church, and Pastor Mark did not profit from the real marriage books being uh, sold either at the church or through result source marketing campaign. So there you go. Um, that, that's kind of the gist of their statement. You know, it was it, it was unwise. It was, it's not a, illegal. It was just unwise. You know, and uh, you know what this reminds me of? It reminds me of Bill Clinton. Yeah, R- Bill Clinton. Remember when the whole Monica Lewinsky scandal thing broke? And, um, and Bill Clinton would say, uh, I did not have sexual relations with that woman, Miss Lewinsky. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, see, and then the when pushed during the uh, when he was actually questioned about this, when pushed uh, on the topic, um, he said it all depends on what is is. Remember that? Yeah, it's kind of burned into my memory. Um, bad politicians. And so my question is, why is Mark Driscoll a pastor in Christ Church, uh, which, by the way, puts him at the standard of if he's going to be qualified to be a pastor, he must be above reproach. Okay. Why is he behaving like a Clintonian politician? Okay, where let's see, we were innocent. It was outside counsel that advised our marketing team to use result source, and and although it's not illegal, what we did this was unwise. And they don't talk about the deception involved in it. And then they're you know they're very careful in the statement that they put out that he didn't profit financially. He didn't, you know, he didn't make any royalties from those books. But 
he benefited personally by being, you know, granted the New York Times bestselling author status, did he not? Which, by the way, they've now changed Mark Driscoll's bio so that it doesn't actually say that he's a New York Times bestselling author. I mean, I mean that's the least that they can do. And, um, and so that's come out, but there's more. There's more. And uh, that is, is that the Christian Post uh, published a... Uh, a article today and the headline reads Mark Driscoll takes apologetic tone during sermon. <laughs> oh, this is so big of him. He's taken an apologetic tone during his last sermon. The Mars Hill church board addresses latest controversy. And so it, which basically begs the question that needs to be asked is the Christian post like Pravda now, are they some kind of propaganda arm of the secret driven movement? Um, so the, the story reads this. Pastor Mark Driscoll of Seattle-based Mars Hill Church has taken an apologetic tone recently, even during Sunday sermons while the most recent controversy surrounding the normally unashamedly brash Christian leader entails criticism of the way his book Real Marriage was marketed. I mean, this is a propaganda puff piece. That's exactly what this is. I mean, this is not Christian repentance. This is not confessing of sins. In fact, Driscoll hasn't confessed to doing anything wrong. And so what we're going to do now is we're going to actually spend a few minutes listening to Mark Driscoll from this past Sunday's sermon, uh, which they've posted a a small three-minute video clip of. Um, called Lessons Learned from 18 Years in Ministry, where you yourself can hear for yourself the apologetic tone used by Mark Driscoll. Tone. He didn't actually apologize. He had an apologetic tone. Here's Mark Driscoll. Things I regret the most... In 18 years of ministry since we started the Bible study that has become Mars Hill Church is when I said the wrong thing, or I said it to the wrong people, or I said it with the wrong tone. Mm, Wow. He regrets saying the wrong thing. What would those wrong things be? What were the wrong things that you said to the wrong persons? And what what did you say exactly with the wrong tone? Would the uh, there's a pile of dead bodies behind the Mars Hill bus, and by the grace of God, it'll be a mountain. Would that be something that you are well, you regret saying? Was it because you said it with the wrong tone, or because you said it to the wrong people? I mean, don't you think the content of what you said there was the problem? We continue. Hands down, for me, this text is the most convicting in the whole book of James. Before I teach you anything, I've got some things to learn. And, and he, he says that we shouldn't just seek to be teachers. Because there's a responsibility that comes with teaching. I love the fact that I get to teach the Bible at Mars Hill, but I, I also live under this tremendous weight that I don't want to make the sermon about me, so let me just deal with this briefly and then proceed forward. Yeah, notice, again, I mean, he hasn't apologized for anything. He's talking about things that he regrets. So he's not owning anything that he's done wrong here. Not one thing. But the, the Christian Post has pointed out that, oh, this is great news because he's taken an apologetic tone. But I, I love you very much. And I want to do the best job that I can. And I'm devastated when I don't. Because Jesus gave his best and you deserve the best. And 
when we started Mars Hill, um, I definitely was more of an angry young prophet. Right? Some of you were here and you're like, mm-hmm. angry young prophet, complete with the vision that you were casting. I mean, again, are you hearing him actually apologize or is it? Oh, that's right. This is just an apologetic tone. We continue. Yes. He yelled a lot. He yelled loud. He, 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 was, he was a good yeller, that guy. It was like a drill sergeant for Jesus, right? Just very loud, very intense all the time, oftentimes infused with anger. As I'm getting older, I've earned all the gray in my beard. Uh, what the Holy Spirit has really convicted me of, especially in the last year, is that my role going forward is to be a spiritual father. The Holy Spirit has convicted you of your need to be a spiritual father. How about the Holy Spirit has convicted you of your need to confess your sins? Confess that it was deceptive, deceitful, dishonest for you to use Mars Hill's tithes and offerings in order to run some kind of shady campaign to make you a New York Times bestseller. How about that? How about the Holy Spirit convicting you of the sin of stealing for plagiarizing other people's works and not citing them properly in the books you were writing and publishing and selling? How about that? How about you being convicted of the sin of destroying the lives and abusing Christ's sheep by throwing them under the bus and having a pile of dead bodies behind Mars Hill bus? How about that? So God, the Holy Spirit, aren't you glad he has an apologetic tone here? I mean, this makes it so much easier for me to have warm, fuzzy feelings about Mark Driscoll. So the Holy Spirit's convicting him to be a a father figure. That my tone needs to be fatherly. Um, That what I say and who I say it to and how I say it has to be more like a father dealing with a son or a daughter which means you can say hard things, but you say them in helpful ways and in appropriate ways. So if you could pray... So was it helpful and appropriate for you to spin the whole New York Times scandal as an unwise decision that was a result of somebody counseling you badly? For me, that's really my heart's desire is to be a better spiritual father and to help us become an increasingly healthy spiritual family. And... uh, And that's the heart of James here, the pastor, and why he he talks about teachers. He's talking about himself and the other leaders at the Church of Jerusalem. So pray for me. Uh, Pray for the leaders and the elders across the church. And and his main point is that really uh, the mouth is a revelation of the heart. So sometimes we'll say things like, you don't know my heart. And you're like, well, but I hear your words. And what they are, they're an overflow of your heart. This is what Proverbs says. This is what Jesus says, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. And so one of the ways that we get insight to our heart, the seat, the sum, the center of who we are, is by hearing our words and letting others speak our words back to us because sometimes we don't understand what we're saying or how we're saying it or how devastating it might be. And so I I want you to know up front, this is a personally, deeply, practically convicting section of scripture for me. Oh, that's so reassuring. I mean, and notice again, he's using an apologetic tone, but he hasn't apologized for anything. In fact, God, the Holy Spirit's going to give him a promotion because that's what the Holy Spirit's convicting him of. So he needs to be more fatherly and be a father figure. 
And so as I seek to teach it to you, I want to teach it to you faithfully, but also humbly and say, I, by God's grace, am not the man that I was, but I'm not the man that I should be. And that God has been working in me and on me on this issue for many years. And I'm a man who lives with some regrets. And what would those be? And I'm not the man that I was, but man, I'm not yet the man that I want to be. I'm somewhere on that continuum and process by God's grace. All right. So there's the uh, video that the um, the folks out the, at the uh, Christian Post have so wonderfully pointed out that he's that Mark Driscoll apparently is just growing by leaps and bounds and making huge strides here, in, uh, in because he's taken on an apologetic tone during his sermon. Did he apologize for anything? No. Did he admit specifically anything that he's done wrong, aside from maybe taking a harsh tone with somebody? No. Did he address the deceit of of what he did uh, to make him a, a New York Times bestseller and how he used tithes and offerings from Mars Hill to do that? No. Did, did he uh, apologize for stealing other people's stuff and plagiarizing them? No. Throwing people under the bus? No. Um, driving the getaway car to uh, to bring T.D. Jakes into the mainstream of evangelicalism, even though he's a, <clears throat> a Trinitarian modalist? No, no, none of that. What is this? Since when did Christian pastors become so important, or specific ones become so important that God's qualifications for a pastor just go out the window and they must be supported at all costs. How is it that he is so big that it's not possible for him to be allowed to fail or suffer the consequences of his sins or actually confess that he's done anything wrong? Something is terribly, terribly askew here. This is corruption of the highest magnitude. And the man is not qualified. He does not meet the biblical qualifications of the pastoral office. Not anymore. And um, and what needs to happen is that God's word needs to have the last say. But for whatever reason, um, whoever's in charge out there at Mars Hill and their accountability board and all that kind of stuff, there is no real accountability. God's word is not the standard anymore. What's happening here is deceitful. What's happening here is dishonest. What's happening here is corrupt. And believe me when I tell you this, nothing good can come of this. Nothing. Absolutely nothing good can come of this. And with Mark Driscoll basically claiming that God the Holy Spirit is really convicting him to really take a more fatherly role, what what that is saying is, is that he really is of the delusion that God is continuing to speak to him a la vision casting style, so that he can create more men like himself in the ministry. Heaven help us if that's actually going to continue happening. We are, it, there's going to be no rest from these vision casting leaders who are abusing Christ's sheep and promoting this ecclesiastical heresy that these guys have concocted. <clears throat> We're in for some rough days ahead. That's all I got to say. All right, we're up on our second break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian or follow me on Twitter. My name there, at pirate Christian. We'll be right back. Sermon review. A couple
Chazon sermon. Yeah, based on the material by Craig Rochelle. We'll see what happens when it hits other churches. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. No itching ears are scratched here. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. Pirate Christian Radio Theater presents Death of a Salesman. Are ye a salesman? Why, yes, I am. Can I interest you in some... You're listening to Byron Christian Radio. No, seriously. Starfleet wouldn't have lasted two minutes against the Death Star. Say what you want, dude. Why can't you admit that Star Trek created proton torpedoes first? So what are you saying? Without proton torpedoes, Luke Skywalker would never have been able to destroy the Death Star in the first place. Nuh-uh, bro. He had the Force. You mean midichlorians? That never happened. Those movies were just bad fanfics. Have you two seen any Daleks around here? Uh, no. That's funny. We just picked up a distress signal and decided to check it out. Well, we haven't seen any... Come on, you two! Get in! Run! Never fear, nerds of the world. It doesn't matter whether you're into Star Wars, Star Trek, or Doctor Who. ThinkGeek has something for almost every fandom around. Celebrate your love of all things nerdy by going to www.piratechristianradio.com forward slash geek. And by clicking on the ad banner, a portion of your purchase will go to supporting Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. Two here at Fighting for the Faith. I don't. I don't think I've ever seen anything quite like it with the Driscoll thing. I'm getting to the point where I'm convinced if the man were caught committing adultery with on his wife, they'd still keep him is, as pastor. That's how bad this is getting. Changing gears here. I gotta get my mind off Driscoll. Ah. The good, the bad, the ugly. We review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We're an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Today's sermon comes to us via Bozeman Christian Center, Bozeman, Montana. John Shiline presiding. Name of the sermon we'll be listening to is Chazon. That's right, Chazon. Yeah, you get it, kind of get it from the back of your throat there. 
And uh, this is a sermon based upon the book and the material and the uh, Bible study materials that go along with it, written by seeker-driven visionary leader Craig Rochelle, good buddies with Mark Driscoll, Stephen Furtick, Perry Noble. Those, yeah, yeah. So <clears throat> what we're going to be doing here is take a listen to what it sounds like when their bad theology from their bad books gets in the hands of, you know, your ordinary grassroots, seeker-driven, non-denominational type guy out there in the uh, flyover regions of the United States. So let me go ahead and kill the music. And without any further ado, here is Chazon. Here we go. So thank you, Lindsay, for sharing that. Uh, Sharice, you probably are very proud of your daughter right there, huh? Come on. You know, this morning we're going to be starting a new sermon series called Kazon. Everyone say Kazon. And we'll get into that a little bit today. And I just want you to know ahead of time, part of my goal today is to encourage you so much that you want to be a part of a small group, that it will be undeniable and that you will walk out of here signed up, ready to go. Sound good? So in the early 1980s, I had some friends, Jack and Kathy, and they were living in Dubois, Wyoming, but they had moved to California. Well, over Christmas, they planned on going to go see their parents, who happened to both live in Wisconsin, which is where they were both from. And so they left California, and they planned on driving straight through without stopping, just trading off drivers, and it was a long journey. So they got to Nebraska, and they were going through Nebraska, and just driving along, loving life. And it was about 2 o'clock in the morning, and Jack was tired. He was exhausted. And so he, he pulled off to the nearest rest area, and he said, Kathy, I have got to switch drivers with you. I'm, I'm spent. I'm done. So he went into the restroom. He came out and got into the passenger seat and fell right to sleep. It wasn't until the next morning when um, Kathy realized that the sun was coming up behind them that they had issues. About five hours of driving the opposite direction was really unfortunate for Jack and Kathy because now, just imagine, you're ten hours out of your way. Five hours one way, now five hours back the other way. Kind of a bummer, huh? You know, that can happen in our own lives. Everybody ends up somewhere, but few people end up somewhere on purpose. I want you to say that with me. Everybody ends up somewhere, but few people end up somewhere on purpose. You know, call me old school, but normally in church, at least in my experience, you know, but then again, I attend those old school churches, you know. Um, when people, you know, participate in the service where they repeat things back, in in times past it would actually be a passage of scripture. You could you could read it responsively and things like this. What is this? And what is this doctrine? Where does this come from? Heard the phrase: "If you aim at nothing, you'll hit it every time." That's the concept right there. And so when we're talking about our kazone, what we're... So the Bible actually teaches if you aim at nothing, you'll hit it every time. Where are you getting this? Is that where do we want to end up? And if we... Does... Heaven, the Lord's kingdom, visible kingdom. I don't want to end up in hell. How's that? 
desire to end up in a certain place in our life, in our physical life, in our financial life, in our social life, if we desire to end up somewhere, that doesn't just happen by accident. So let me ask you a couple of questions just to kind of survey the audience right here. How many of you would love to end up completely 100% debt-free? Yeah, isn't that awesome? Like where you could give generously to whatever ministry you felt led to give to, where you're you, like God speaks to you and you're like, I'm, I'm given to that because I, I want to be a part of that. I mean, how many would love to be there, right? Now, how many of you would love to be in such great physical health that if somebody said to you, hey, I want to go like cross-country skiing, and you, you say yes with a positive yes because you know you're not going to be out there sucking air, and like you're, you're like, yes, I'm in good enough physical shape that I can do things like that. Where does the Bible talk about this? My body is healthy. How many of you would like to end up there? Not necessarily the cross-country skiing, but I know some of you are like, man, that's I'm like allergic to that kind of thing. How many of you that are not married would love to end up in a great marriage someday? Come on. How many of you that are married would love to end up having one of the best marriages out there? Come on. Well, I'm here to tell you and I'm here to promise you that you can have all those things. Not because I'm some infomercial or not because I'm... <laughs> You're here to promise me that we can... Really, this is what the Bible promises us. Is this a joke? Motivational speaker or get quick rich type of scheme. Not any of that. Because all of these things are things that God desires for our life. Like God desires for us to be debt free. He desires for us to be um, healthy in our bodies. He desires for us to love what we're doing in our work life. He desires for us to have good relationships with other people. He desires for us to have healthy marriages. So God wants all of these things. That's why I can say beyond a shadow of a doubt that you can end up there. And God wants you to repent of your sins, yet not everybody does. So I can't guarantee that everybody will. What is this logic that you are employing here? End up there, but few of us are going to end up there on purpose. For Christ followers, George Barna did this research where he got um, thousands of Christ followers to answer a bunch of questions and Those that claim that they are following Christ, that they're a born-again Christian, here's what he found. 31% said that they're extremely stressed out. 49% said that they're too busy to add anything extra to their life. 50% said they needed a new set of friends. 40% said that they're living with at least $5,000 in debt. 16% said that they are dealing with an addiction. And 48% said that they were searching for their purpose in life. All of those numbers reflect something. If you're too stressed out, if you're too busy, if you're needed... Listen, we don't do Christian doctrine and Christian theology based upon surveys, especially Barna surveys. 
new set of friends, if you're in debt up to your eyeballs, if you're dealing with addiction, all of that is saying this, that you're just kind of roaming about figuring out life one day at a time. And because of that, you're not ending up anywhere on purpose. You're just saying, well, whatever comes today, that's what comes. And that's why you're in debt. That's why you're stressed. That's why you're too busy. So our verse that we're focusing on is a very... Yeah, aren't all these things that you're describing kind of like the symptoms of sin? And that would mean that we have a sinful nature and the problem is a lot deeper than just because we haven't strategically figured out where we're going. Verse found in Proverbs chapter 29, verse 18. Say it with me. Where there is no vision, the people perish. This word kazon, that's the word for vision that the Hebrew writers were using. Kazon, where there is not no kazon, the people perish. So when you say this word kazon, you have to almost say it like... Yeah, um, okay. <clears throat> Proverbs 29 verse 18 has a comma. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I point this out regularly here, um, but let's point this out here. When somebody says, where there is no vision, the people perish, that's from a particular translation. Let me read it to you from the ESV. Here's what it says. Where there is no prophetic vision, and yes, the Hebrew word is chazon, the people cast off restraint, comma, but blessed is he who keeps the Torah, huh? the law. So when you read the rest of the sentence, I mean, who on earth can preach a, uh, preach a sermon based upon an incomplete sentence? This is no way to preach God's word. And by not giving us the complete sentence, you then hijack the text and begin to make it say things that it's not saying. Because what's the prophetic vision that is being referred to here? It's the law of God. Where there is no prophetic vision, the people cast off restraint, but blessed is he who keeps the Torah, the law of God. That's what this passage says. It's one verse, and that's how Proverbs generally run. But you're only quoting half of it, and by doing that, you're going to, I can tell where this is going to go, you're going to start making stuff up about this text because you've ripped it from its context, lopped off the part that doesn't fit the theology that you're trying to preach here so that you can insert your own theology into this passage. Mm-hmm. That's what he's going to do. Here we go. Fucking Louie, like, ka-zone. All right. Ka, ka. Now try saying it. Ka-zone. <laughs> In Klingon, yeah. Now, it's not calzone, nor is it calzones, which is Spanish for underwear. It's not any of those, all right? It's ka-zone. All right. So what we want to do over the next six weeks, including today, is find our kazon and live within it. How can we experience our kazon? So what exactly is this word kazon? It means actually more than just vision. It means dream, revelation, or vision. And so picture this, what we were just talking about. If there's no kazon for a godly family, that's why over half the marriages end up in divorce. If there's no, that is not how that works, and that's not what this verse is saying. The reason why marriages end in divorce is because 
both uh, both parties go into it as sinners. And when sin rules and reigns, rather than is forgiven and repented of, not in that order, but repented of and forgiven, oftentimes marriages blow apart. Uh-huh. It's not because they don't have a vision for their marriage. No kazon for financial freedom. That's why we end up in debt. No, people end up in debt because they have the lust of the eyes. They are constantly out there lusting after and coveting and wanting stuff, and they can't afford it. So what do they do? They go out and get credit so that they can purchase it and make installment plans on it. This has to do with a consumer culture that basically is idolatrous and covetous. That's what this is about. has nothing to do with not having a vision for good financial management. It has to do with this lust of the eyes and coveting. If there's no kazon for a healthy body, then we're going to end up out of shape. Yeah, again, this might have to do with laziness or gluttonous behavior, which are sins, not because of a not having a kazon for being skinny. And so when there's no kazon, the people perish. I mean, the list could go on and on and on. So vision, kazon. Yeah, the reason it can go on and on and on is because you've lopped off the second half of the sentence of that proverb. Is the ability to see beyond the surface of our human potential into God's potential for our life. It's not what we are, but it's what we desire to become and where we want to go. That's the idea of this kazon in our life. Walt Disney had a kazon. When he went to go build Walt Disney World, he had this great vision for what it would look like. And in 1998, 45 million people visited Walt Disney World. That's a lot of people. Well, Walt Disney never got to see the opening of Walt of Disney World. In fact, it was open on October 1st, 1971. They celebrated it with this great, huge, grand opening. Walt Disney's widow was there on site for the grand opening. And someone looked over at her and they said these words. They said, isn't it a shame that your husband couldn't live to see this? And she looked back at them without even a thought. And she said, he did. That's why it's here today. When we have a vision for where we want to go, we can get there. When we have a kazon for what God wants to do in our lives, we can get there. Because God desires for us to get financially free, for us to have a godly family, for us to live a healthy life. God desires these things. It's seen throughout Scripture. Yeah, and... Why don't you show us all of those passages in context? I'd like to actually see you try to actually preach the Bible in context. We've heard one verse, actually half a verse. The the, the back half of the sentence was lopped off. And you keep making all of these assertions, basically turning God into our big sugar daddy in the sky. I, I don't think so. So with his help, we can get there. So over the next few weeks, I want to travel through this experience together, finding the kazon for our life, 
and how we can experience it, how we can live it out in our daily existence. And the awesome news that I want to tell everybody here today is that you can live knowing exactly what you are created for. So the awesome news, this is different than the good news. The awesome news, oh, you can live exactly what you're created for. Kind of what we heard from Rick Warren. Um, hmm. I thought the good news was that Christ died for our sins and was raised again on the third day for our justification. That's the good news. This other stuff, this, this great, awesome news that you're proclaiming, it's not even found in the Bible. And so this sounds to me like a false gospel. Because you were created for a purpose. You were created for this time, for this place, for this moment in history to bring the most glory to God in your circumstances. That Boy, I sure am important, aren't I? You were created. And he created you for this moment. And if we could understand that and then understand why he created us, we can change the world. Now, I know some of you are already sitting here saying, oh, my goodness, we got a visionary pastor who's just trying to make me a visionary. Uh-huh, yeah. Um, run, run. The, the, the Great Commission is go and make disciples, not go and make a difference or go and change the world. Run. This is really toxic theology here. I'm not trying to make you a visionary. I'm trying to help you understand why God created you and how you can live that out in your every breath. That's what I'm trying to do. And when we do that, we change the world. When we operate the way God wants us to operate, when we operate the way he has designed us, how he's wired us, we change the world. But we first have to find out, okay, God, how have you created me? If you look back in biblical history, whether it's the Old Testament or the New Testament, if you look at Moses or David, if you look at Esther or Paul or Nehemiah, you look at all of those people throughout Scripture, and here's what you recognize. All of the spiritual greats in in history have had a vision for their life. God's placed it out before them, and then they've followed it. Boy, we heard this exact same false handling of God's word last Friday from Perry Noble regarding the fact that pastors are supposed to receive unique visions for their churches. Now this is Kazon. You're supposed to receive a unique vision for your individual life, too. So, I mean, receive and cast vision on a community level, receive and cast vision on an individual level. Uh Uh-huh. If you look at it, it's, it's quite obvious when you're, when you're looking at the stories of Moses and David and Esther and Nehemiah and all of those. They've had this kazon, if you will. But they've all experienced these distinct phases along the way where they've understood their kazon, where they've um, really began to understand what they were created to do and where they were go- supposed to go with it. It didn't just happen overnight, typically. It happened in phases where... God used these certain phases along the way, and then finally, boom, they found their kazon and they lived within it. So we're going to look at one particular kazon, the story of Paul. If you have your Bibles, you can turn into Acts chapter 20, or you can look it up on your YouVersion app, uh, search for live events. But I'm going to read, starting in verse 22, 
a very quick um, section of scripture. It reads this way. And now compelled by the Spirit, I'm going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. I only know that in every city the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me if only I may finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the gospel of God's grace. Let me give you a little background of this story right here. Paul is ministering in Ephesus. Ephesus is a city that he loves. Ephesus is a city that's near and dear to his heart. He loves Ephesus so much, he started a church there. And he doesn't want to leave Ephesus. He's pretty comfortable in Ephesus. He's loving Ephesus. He loved this place. And so he is loving life, but he feels like God's called him into doing something different, moving on to something better, something greater for his life. So Paul gets the elders together and he says, hey, I want to tell you what I feel like God's spurring inside my heart. I want to tell you what God's telling me. And so he begins to tell them, it's time for me to go. It's time for me to do something else, if you will. Some of you over the next few weeks, God's going to speak to your heart. And he's going to tell you to go. It may be a change of pace for you. It may be a change of job for you. It may be a change of location for you. You may love what's going on, but God's going to say, go. And here's my challenge to you. Listen to the voice of the Holy Spirit. Because when God says go, go. Uh And no, the Bible doesn't actually teach that God's going to do this. This is not what the Bible says. You want to hear God's voice, open up your Bible and read it. Take the step of faith and go, because he's unveiling your kazon. When you discover your kazon... No, God is not unveiling any of your kazons. The Bible doesn't teach this. This is horrifyingly awful to listen to. have to say goodbye to where you're at. You may have to leave your comfort zone. You may have to take a step of faith into unknown places, into unknown jobs, into unknown territory. You may have to take that step of faith because that's where God wants you to go. And over the next few weeks, some of you will find that you need to take a step of faith into a new adventure or a new calling. But before we get into that, let's examine what Paul went through, what I call the four phases of Paul discovering his kazon. The first phase is the idea of the Spirit's prompting. So in verse 22, Paul says to his elders who he gathers together, he says, and now compelled by the Spirit, I'm going to Jerusalem. So in other words, this isn't Paul's idea. Paul didn't wake up and say, man, this is my idea. I'm like leaving Ephesus. I'm going on to bigger and better things. No, Paul says, Being compelled by the Spirit, I'm going to go to Jerusalem. Here's what that means. It's the Holy Spirit's idea. If you look at that word and you parse it a little bit, you realize that it means deo pneuma. Deo is the concept of of the Greek word meaning bound or wrapped up in cords. And pneuma is the Greek word that translates spirit or breezes of the Spirit. So the concept is this. Paul was so wrapped up in the spirit of God that he was willing to listen. He was being compelled. 
by the Spirit of God. Many of you have had one of those Deo Numa moments where you've just felt God all around you. You're like, I can't deny this. Like, God is like right here. Like, you know that God has spoken to you clearly. You know that you're just wrapped up in the amazingness of who God is. You just know it. How many have ever experienced where you're just like, I just know? Yeah. That's a Deo Numa moment. And Paul had this moment where he's saying, I have been wrapped up in the Holy Spirit. And I sense that this is what the Holy Spirit is doing. And in the Kazon experience, we want you to have this Deo Numa moment. So we've... That is not what this text is saying. It's, this is not an invitation for you to have a Deo Numa moment so that you can find your Kazon. This text doesn't teach this. This environment, if you will, where we want to look at... Uh, your past experiences, how has God used those past experiences to shape who you are? We want to look at your core values. What really makes you tick as an individual? We want to look at the gifts that God has placed on your heart. Like, who has he created you to be? And all of these things will come together, forming what we call our kazon. That we know beyond a shadow of a doubt, this is why God has created me. And as you go through your small groups, or if you absolutely say to me today, I cannot do a small group, here's what I want to tell you. You can still find your Kazone. It's like an infomercial up here. <laughs> this book is optional, but um, it's a great book. This book is what the, the small groups will be going through. If you say, I cannot go through a small group, my time just will not allow it. Grab this book, um, go on to kazone.com. I mean, it's very simple. Go on to kazone.com and go through the steps. And all of a sudden, ta-da, you have found your kazone. All right? But over the next few weeks, we're going to take all of those things, put them together, and it creates what we call our kazone. And when you begin to understand that, the Spirit is going to prompt you to do new things. To do things maybe you've never... Really, again, where in the Bible does it say that if I go to kazone.com and start learning this stuff, that all of a sudden God's going to start prompting me to do new things? This is preposterous. Not only is it preposterous, this is demonic. Thought imaginable or possible. The Spirit will prompt you. The second phase that Paul goes through is this idea of certain uncertainty. That's a great phrase, huh? Certain uncertainty. Basically, what that's saying is that the Spirit is going to prompt us, and then we're going to come up with all the questions. Where we're going to say, uh, okay, God, now what? You've told me to do this, but now what? You think you've heard from God, but then all of a sudden the questions come up. So some of you have heard from God, hey, I'm supposed to go on a missions trip. That's what God told me. And then you ask the question, but how can I afford it? Or some of you have heard God say, I want you to go and forgive this person. And the question comes up, but I don't know what their response is going to be. And so this certain uncertainty says, you can't be certain of the results. When the Spirit prompts you, just do it. Don't ask all of the questions. The next part of verse 22, Paul says, he says, 
I'm compelled by the Spirit. I'm going to Jerusalem. And then he says, not knowing what will happen to me there. Basically, he's saying, I, I don't know what's going to happen. I know I'm supposed to do this. I know that I'm led by the Spirit to do it. But I have no clue what the end result is going to be. I really don't. Sometimes when God asks us to take a step of faith, we spend too much time asking questions. We analyze everything until we're paralyzed. Pam and I have this wonderful relationship where um, I communicate on a need-to-know basis and she communicates on a I-need-to-know-everything basis. (laughs) And so... When she asks, okay, so what did this person say? What's best for me is to tell her the entire conversation, including inflections. (laughs) It works so much better because for me, I would just tell her the details. Boom, here's the details, we're done. But she really wants to know all of the details because she's an inquisitive person. She asks a lot of questions. How many of you would say you're kind of that way? You You like all the questions answered, right? For you that just raised your hands, I can guarantee you that this phase of Kazon is going to be difficult for you. It's going to be tough. How can you guarantee this because the Bible doesn't talk about any phases in Kazon? You've just totally whole cloth made that up. Because you're going to ask a lot of questions. Okay, God, you've told me to do this, but I need to know this, 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 and this. And if you don't tell me all these things, I'm not going to do them. God's saying there's a little bit of certain uncertainty here. You just got to roll with it. (laughs) Here's what else God says. I'm calling you to do this, but I know that you can't handle all the details right now. So you just need to trust me. If we really knew all the details, we might not do it. God gives us what we need along the way. In the Kazon small groups, we're going to talk about the power of your next step. We're going to talk about how important it is for you to take that next step, that step of faith. So God gives us this huge vision for our lives, and he wants to help us get there. But what's so important is the power of that next step. We've got to take that next step. I love the phrase that says, I'll do today what I can do to enable me to do tomorrow what I can't do today. Let me say that again. I will do today what I can do to enable me to do tomorrow what I can't do today. That's the power of the next step, taking one step at a time. Many of you have been called by God to go and do something, but in your mind, you want to automatically be at step five. And what God is saying to you is in order to get to step five, you've got to go through steps one, two, three, and four. You can't automatically step to step five. You are not entitled to go immediately to step five. And where does the Bible talk about step five again? I need to see the list from the Bible. I'm not familiar with the step five limitations from Scripture. You've got to go through steps one, two, three, and four. When God finds or when God allows you to understand your vision for your life, you can expect certain uncertainty. 
the next phase of your... Again, where in the Bible does it talk about certain uncertainty? Again, this isn't found in the scripture. Kazon, finding it and living it out, is this idea of predictable resistance. So as you step out into God's vision for your life, as you step out of the boat and you say, this is my Kazon, I'm going to live it out. I want you to also grab a calendar and mark it on your calendar that there's going to be some resistance. There's going to be people that say, "Uh uh-uh, you can't do that. There's going to be situations that come on that say, oh, wait, I don't like this. And here's why. The enemy does not want you to find your kazone and live it out. He doesn't want you to. And so what happened? And where in the Bible does it say that the devil doesn't want me to find my kazone and live it out? And where does the Bible say that we should expect predictable resistance to when we find our kazone? It doesn't. Is there is predictable resistance. In verse 23, Paul says, he says, only the prison and hardships are facing me. He understands there's going to be resistance for me stepping out of the boat and doing this. He understands that clearly. In other words, there's going to be an enemy that tries to stop you from doing the thing that God wants you to do. And he's going to try everything he can because he knows that you were created uniquely to do that. And he's going to try everything he can to stop it. You look through. Boy, you sound so important there, don't you? Again, this is just nonsense. The Bible doesn't teach this. And this isn't just something I've come up with. You, look, you recognize that Moses had this kazone to set the people free. Immediately, predictable resistance was Pharaoh. He said, uh-uh, I'm going to cause everything possible so you can't set the people free. You recognize the story of Noah. Noah had a kazone. Build a boat, save your family. The people around him said, You are a weird dude. Like, you're spending years building this thing and it doesn't even rain. There's no water in sight. Predictable resistance. You look at David. David knew he was called to be king as a young child. But then Saul becomes king. You look at David um, and the story of Goliath. And you recognize that David shows up and he says, I'm going to kill that guy. I'm going to kill that giant because God told me to. Like, that's my cause right now. I'm going to go kill him. And the people around him are like... You can't even wear the armor. You're too small. You're little. Like you're a little dude. It ain't going to happen. Predictable resistance. You look at the story of, of um, Joseph. And Joseph had this kazon that he was going to be a great leader. His brothers look at him and said, whatever. We're actually going to steal your coat and throw you in this pit and sell you as a slave. That's what we're going to do. Predictable resistance. Nehemiah had this kazon. We're going to rebuild the temple. And um, Sanballat and Tobiah were like, no, you're not. We're going to put every resistance in place so that you can't do that. Understand this. Every person that begins to operate in the vision that God has given them, will experience resistance. When you hear from God and take that... Like I said, the Bible doesn't teach this anywhere. This guy is filling these people's minds with utter nonsense. Who is the source of this nonsense? Craig Rochelle. This is the same theology we heard, like I said, from Perry Noble regarding vision casting. Now it's individual vision. The Bible simply doesn't teach this. Faith 
I can promise you that all hell is going to break loose in your life. But you got to be strong and courageous. Do not fear, for the Lord thy God will go with you. And we'll walk with you through the process as well. You get a vision to have a godly marriage. So you say, we're going to start praying together. Well, you start praying together and then all of a sudden you have the worst fight you've ever had in your marriage. You want to get financially free and so you set up this plan. You have this vision to be financially free. So you make steps forward toward that financial freedom and then your car breaks down and you have to put a thousand bucks into it. You say, I want to become more physically fit. I want to have a healthier body. And so you go to the store and you buy fruits and vegetables. But right over here is screaming Twinkies, 75% off. (laughs) Predictable resistance. For some of you, you have been asked by God to... Figure out your purpose, but you come up with every excuse known to man. For some of you in this room, right now the resistance is joined in a small group. For others in this room, you're actually going to take that step. You're going to join a small group. But then this week, as you are heading to small group, something could happen. Car could break down. Something could happen at home. Where then you begin to ask, well, I guess I'm just not supposed to go there. Predictable resistance. Push through it. The enemy does not want you to figure out your vision, why God has created you. He doesn't want it. And so he's going to throw everything in your path. This is a chasing after the wind. To get you off track. It's going to happen. If you can break through that, you can experience the final phase of finding and living out your kazon. And that final phase is this idea of uncommon clarity where you know beyond a shadow of a doubt that this is why you were created. This is where God wants you to live your life. He wants you to know your purpose. He wants you to know your identity. He wants you to know your calling and he wants you to live it out. You can feel the power of Paul's words here. Starting in verse 24, he reads... I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me. The task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. Understand this. Here's Paul's kazon right here. He says, my kazon, my vision for my life is the task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. Everything else is worth nothing to Paul. That's his kazon. That's why he was created. Uh-huh. And why aren't you doing that? Oh, that's right, because that's Paul's kazon. Your kazon's probably different, right? So he says, I want to end up there. And I'm going to end up there on purpose. He says, I can finish the race. I can complete the task. In other words, Paul knew why he existed and what he was supposed to do. He knew his end result. Paul had this uncommon clarity over his life where he said, I know my kazon. I know the vision God's placed in my life and I'm going to live it out. I want you to get to a place where you say, I know exactly why God created me. 
I know the purpose he has over my life. I know where I'm going. I know where I'm going to end up. I was created by God. I was placed here at this moment in history, at this time, at this place, so that I can bring the most glory to God in my generation. That's why you were created. Figuring out your zone, your vision, your purpose. I'm going to invite the worship team up as we get ready to close. Vision, this idea of vision is the ability to sense God's presence, that spirit prompting, that Deo Numa. It's the ability to perceive God's power. It's the ability to focus on God's plan in spite of the obstacles, the resistance. It is, an, it is us adopting the action plan that enables us to do what God's told us to do spiritually and in service to him. Here's what I know. Over the next few weeks, you're going to be going through this process. Phases. Spirit is going to prompt you. You're going to recognize the Holy Spirit is going to talk to you. Understand this, like sometimes people get weirded out by that. They're like, that sounds a little too spiritual for me. The spirit prompts not always in audible, loud voices. Sometimes it's in a quiet whisper. But because our God is still alive and he sent our... Cue sappy music. Now notice the technique here. It's emotional manipulation, basically ripped out of context verses. He didn't really exegete any of the passages. He's read into it this Kazon theology that he got from Craig Rochelle. And it's, it's shrouded and kind of covered in pious-sounding Christianese. But none of it is actually what any biblical text says anywhere. Spirit to be a comforter, we still communicate with the God of the universe, which means He's going to talk to you, He's going to prompt you. As the Spirit prompts you to do something, understand this there's going to be some certain uncertainty. You got to step out, don't ask all the questions. If the Bible really wanted to us to understand that God's going to speak directly to us and we're going to experience uncertain certainty and then we're going to have people coming against our vision and then finally we'll have uncommon clarity. Why does the Bible not teach this theology clearly straight up if this is really what it's about? Because right now God doesn't want to give all the answers to you. He just wants you to follow. He wants you to trust. Understand this as you begin to trust him and you begin to step out. There's going to be some resistance. It's predictable. Mark it on your calendar. It's going to happen. But step out and press through that resistance so that you can fully get to the place where you say, I know why I was created. I know why I am here. And it's so clear to me that I'm going to step out and do it with uncommon clarity. Take the step of faith. Listen to the Spirit. Refuse to listen to the people around you that say you can't do it. Refuse to allow the obstacles to get in your way and stop you. Push past the obstacles. You can do it. This idea of kazon, 
understanding our vision, our dream, our revelation that God has for our lives. And if you find your kazon and really live it out, at the end of your days, you're going to be able to say confidently, I did a great work because I did what God created me to do. Everyone ends up somewhere, but few people end up somewhere on purpose. You have the opportunity to end up somewhere on purpose. Yeah, I remember the day when, you know, the place you wanted to end up on purpose was heaven when you died, with Christ when you died. The place you didn't want to end up was hell. So now, you know, this is, you're going to have a unique vision for being skinny and getting out of debt because God's going to come speak to you. And as soon as you decide that you're going to get out of debt because you found your cause for that, oh, you're going to have predictable resistance. Things are going to come up that are going to try to just keep you in debt because the devil doesn't want you experiencing your cause This I just, words kind of fail. But this is the heart and soul of the really bad ridiculous, silly, narcissistic, goofy, off-topic theology that we're getting from seeker-driven churches today. Prayer for our church family over the next few weeks is that God would give us our kazon, our vision, our purpose, our focus, our clarity, so that we would know, each of us, beyond a shadow of a doubt, why God has created us that philosophical question that we've asked ourselves for thousands of years. Why were we created? I ask you to bow your heads and close your eyes. We're going to have some reflection time here for just a second. Reflection time. Yeah, I'll pass. You know, the church I go to, we pray. We don't have reflection time. What is happening? To the Christian church. How has it come to this where pastors are brazenly dishonest with God's word and flippantly unfaithful to what it says and just making up theology and calling it Christian? New theology, new doctrine that's supposedly what Christian sanctification is about, and God's word has nothing to say about any of this. This is utter nonsense, but not only that, it's worse than that, it's flat out rebellion. This is apostasy in its truest definition against what God and his word have says. I mean, this is unbelievable. <sighs> yeah, so there you go. That gives you an idea of what it looks like when the Kazon theology, uh, <laughs> created by Craig Rochelle, not God's word, you know, gets into the bloodstream or mainstream of uh, an evangelical, seeker-driven church plant. This is what it sounds like. Complete and utter blasphemy is what it is. What did you think? Love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Follow me on Twitter, my name there at pirate Christian. Until tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen. Amen.